Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks. Uh, just a quick content warning for a discussion of bodies, specifically uh, women's bodies in media and sexual assault in this episode. From the first day I played Soul Calibur in the early 2000s, up into playing Soul Calibur 6 in the present day, I have felt every possible feeling about character Ivy Valentine's tits and ass. Alienated, angry, sad, jealous, embarrassed, bored, horny, amused, jaded. Ivy hasn't changed much throughout the life of the series, but I've changed my mind about her many times over the years. Ivy wears a purple thong leotard with cutout pieces that bear her cleavage and midriff. The detailing and cut of her bustier has changed slightly from game to game, but every version of her uh, of her look keeps the full curve of both butt cheeks and breasts in view. She pairs this with thigh-high boots, shoulder armor, and a sword that transforms into a whip. When she slings that whip at her opponents, she points her toe and rests a hand on her cocked hip as though posing for the camera or the player. Those are the words of Maddie Myers over at Kotaku in a piece called The Inexplicable Sexiness of Ivy Valentine. And I should note, Maddie's a personal friend, so we'll put that up top. Disclosure, all that good stuff. I'm Danielle Rando, and this is Waypoint Radio 206. Joining me today are Patrick Klepek. Hello. And Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. So we picked this piece. Uh, actually, Patrick, you this one struck your fancy, I believe, and I think it's pretty resonant for a lot of reasons. Certainly, not only is it about you know a recent game and a character and something, you know, I think everybody kind of thinks about in terms of game characters and sexy versus exploited and et cetera, et cetera. But also, it has a lot to do with the sort of continuation of the bayonetta discourse, which is something you mentioned uh, when you sort of selected the piece for possible contention for a topic this week. Do you want to talk a tiny bit about the Bayonetta discourse or, sh- or should I set that up as well? No, no. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, uh, the Bayonetta discourse is uh, complicated. I think that's what, as, as someone that is a, you know, tries to be a, a straight white uh, ally, um, often you find yourself, I think, sometimes being knee-jerky in response to certain characters or certain depictions and that actually the readings on that from different corners are more nuanced than that um, um often informed by experiences that are beyond my own and so like bayonetta i think was an early instructive uh version of that in which you know i remember some of my reactions to that being like oh wow this is this is gross and terrible and i mean i mean not the game <laughs> the game is like fantastic it's a it's an amazing playing game um uh, but the character um was one of those that like that was my initial response and then reading a lot of uh, different, you know, feminist-leaning readings on that character, like, 
there were uh you know viewpoints that ran the gamut on 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 bayonetta you know from uh is it, are, are you just considering you know the character's design or is the camera what's the more important uh sort of uh perspective on how you interpret that character and and what it's reading on it is and uh, then this piece struck me as sort of another entry in a similar sort of discussion in which it's a character that is, um, and the piece actually, you know, Maddie points out like is, you know, Ivy becomes like an easy, uh, sort of target for like the, uh, very common, you know, sexually exploitative character designs that are often found in Japanese fighting games and, and lots of other Japanese uh, games. Not that Western games are an exception there, but it, it is certainly the case that um, it is a trope of, of Japanese character design. Um, and and yet, uh, you, you know, she found herself uh, being, you know, inspired, excited, you know, all sorts of feelings. Um, and, and her piece touches, you know, I think on this this reclamation aspect that I think is important and complicated and is why I find pieces like this really enlightening because there's almost, not almost, there is no way for me to have had that experience and relationship with this character. And so reading these pieces I find to be very vital um, because it is sort of like the epitome of like why it is interesting to read pieces from different perspectives because, you know, you know old Patrick is like, oh, look at this character. You know, young Patrick is like, oh, look at this character with booze. <laughs> and then like older, like, you know, theoretically more enlightened Patrick is like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you know, these, this is, this is bad. Like, this is exploitative. Like, this is gross. Um, you know, and, and across the spectrum, it is, it is far more nuanced than that. Yeah. I, one of the things that I loved so much about this piece uh, is just sort of that she takes you through her, her kind of history with Ivy and very much. It's something I, I definitely sort of identify with as well. Although I don't think I was ever necessarily sort of grossed out or like, oh, by some of these characters. I was more intimidated by them. Like young Danielle was like terrified of her sexuality and terrified of what it meant that like these sexy ladies with big boobs and whips were like enticing in some way. It was more like, oh, God, then ugh, gross. I hate you. Uh, but other than that, like a lot of other parts of the journey, I like definitely sort of identify with, you know, the sort of like reclaiming some portions of this and feeling like, well, sure, these are characters, especially specifically Ivy and other characters. She goes through other characters as well in the Soul Calibur series and points out that like everybody kind of picks on Ivy, but there are like underage characters in these games or, or characters that were underage in portions of the fiction. And it's like, Ivy's a grown-ass woman. Like, there's there's a pretty big difference there between, like, okay, this is a grown woman and how she chooses to dress versus, like, okay, this is a little something else here. Um, <clears throat> but the way she kind of goes through this journey of, like, being kind of grossed out by this character and just feeling, like, embarrassed. Because I know Maddie's somebody who, you know, used to play fighting games, at least somewhat competitively, and probably still does on some level. And, like, you know, she would go to, you know, fighting game competitions or small competitions and the boys would always be really gross about ivy they would be really gross about her her breasts or her ass or whatever and feeling really grossed out by that to kind of coming to reclaim some of this and being like yeah you know what she was designed by mostly a team of dudes and she was designed in such a way and the camera does pander in such a way but there's an element of like reclaiming a character for your own saying like she doesn't care what the camera thinks she's here to you know, whip people and kick your ass and, and that kind of thing, which can be powerful in a lot of ways, which is a lot of fun. Um, I kind of wanted to ask if anybody here has sort of evolved feelings 
on characters that that stick out to them like this. And it doesn't have to be in this sort of sexual way or like in this. Obviously, Ivy is coded in such a way that she's a dominatrix, that she's a dom in some ways. Uh, but I know my for myself, there's obviously a lot of characters I've changed my mind about throughout my life. There are like a lot of the, you know, the sort of 80s action heroes that I thought were so great um, when I was younger. I've, I've come around on some of them. Han Solo, I'm, the jury is still out for me on a lot of his behavior and the way he acts. That's like another Harrison touchdown. Ford romantic leads in general. Yes. I think have become more complicated. A little bit. You know, there's some a of weird do, through line. Some of them do creepy shit. And it's kind of like, oh, I see. When I was a very young woman, I, I thought he was so hot and so awesome. And what a, what a charming rogue. And then now I look at some of that stuff and I'm like, oh, God. Okay, we've got problems. And it's, you got to hold your nose and open your computer and, and look things up. It's, it's a whole thing. Uh, but I, I'm wondering if, you, if either of you have characters that you've kind of had like a, a real arc with or, or a real difference of opinion sort of over the years. I mean, most of, like for me, most of, most of my points of reference for that are going to be films, right? Sure. Like, that's very true. Uh, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit on uh, you know various podcasts, but like, I love romantic comedies. Um, that is also a genre that, as I look at how those things tend to depict relationships and relationship dynamics. Uh, most of the time, the messages of a lot of those films are really fucking bad. Um, like, you know, how do I square the fact that I still, to this day, will find Say Anything charming uh, and a delightful, <laughs> like, you know, uh, a delightful teen, teen romance with the fact that, like, any person in the real world doing what John Cusack's Lloyd uh, does is a stalker. And is a deeply creepy uh, and kind of manipulative dude. And I don't think you can resolve that in the text of the film. Like I, I, like, I think that is something you have to resolve for yourself and be like, look, this film does not depict reality. But, you know, that, that's one thing to... I think what, what makes those things difficult is when you, when you encounter a lot of art when you're young, to a degree... I'll, it is all making some kind of impression on you in the sense that it is teaching you about the world or depicting something about the way the world works. And when you are not wise to that and when you're not wise to like the problems of certain portrayals and depictions, then those things can be toxic. Um, and it's very easy to be like, well, I can enjoy it. You know, I'm, you know, in my 30s, I've got, I think I've got my head on straight about this stuff. Well, yeah, but the time to have your head, like, the time when you needed to, like, be critical about a movie like Say Anything was when you were, like, 16 and being like, man, this movie's just really heartwarming and sweet. <laughs> look, at the, look at the power of love. Yeah, stand outside that girl who broke out. Stand outside her bedroom window. <laughs> crank, crank up Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah, that's how. That's how. Don't let her get hearts. away, John Cusack. You guys are meant to be. <laughs> oh God, yeah, it's really. And we talked about this on Idol Weekend before, but the the whole arc I've had with um, I'm gonna I'm gonna invoke his name again, uh, but uh, with Decker in in Blade Runner is just absolutely you know watching that as a teenager thinking, wow, he's such a hero. What a great hero. He's so hot. Look at his way with women. Then watching that movie now and being like, he's a 
fucking rapist. Like, this is horrible. This is absolutely atrocious. And a lot of that does have to do with sort of romance and, and love scenes and everything that goes along with sort of gender politics. And it's, it's really hard. I'm trying to think now of, like, any good examples. Not where I sort of loved something and now I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is problematic fave at best hmm. uh, kind of thing. Well, I think what's interesting about sort of, you know, related to Maddie's piece is like part of what she argues about Ivy and like what uh, provides more of an avenue for like a reclamation project is that there isn't much to go on with the character's background, yeah. right? Like so the the series has a story, the characters have backgrounds, but there's not a whole lot of like motivational, there's not a lot a whole lot of uh, 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 behavioral arcs, there's not a whole lot of explanations for anything like you know related you know there's no there's nothing in the backstory of this character that explains you know the the char- the, the the um the clothing choices that they're making um and so that you know that's part of what Maddie argues uh, in her piece is th- is that like that provides an avenue in in which like okay a character in which you can project onto them what you want like within the vacuum allows you to imagine a different sort of character and like this is different uh, than what we're talking about here with, you know, Blade Runner or say anything is in which, you know, there are there are explicit readings to take away or accidental readings to take away in um, um, from a deeper reading of the text. Like there's not so, so much of that here with Soul Calibur. And so like the like within the emptiness is an opportunity for some, you know, this that that can be changed, right? If Soul Cal- the next Soul Calibur game comes in, it's like, yo, actually, here's like a shitty reason to explain like this character and why they do what they do. Like, um, that would somewhat rob, you know, part of you know where like Maddie arrived at um, this uh, th- this character and, and and their feelings on it is because like Namco basically stepped away and has said like, eh, like, you know, whether deliberately or not. Um, you know, do what you want with this character, fill in, fill in the gaps. And that's just usually not the case with a lot of other, um, like, like that's a specific example of like fighting games, not having a whole lot of story and, and backstory and all those sorts of things, um, in which, uh, other forms of media like movies tend to complicate that because we know a lot more about who those characters are and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, that's certainly true. And that's, that is such a huge piece of it. Actually, she kind of goes on in this, um, you know, she sort of explains, her feelings for Ivy the first time and then sees a friend sort of selecting her constantly and playing Ivy well. And it almost becomes like, oh, this is Ivy as her friend in some ways, uh, which sort of does speak to both that reclaiming angle and also the player like player input angle, right, of almost sort of role-playing as a character in some ways. And she does talk about <clears throat> it just what <laughs> a poor job Soul Calibur, Soul Calibur does is humanizing any characters in it. She says, I like seeing my female pairs, uh, peers reclaim Soul Calibur's characters without shame. Characters who weren't created for them, but who became weapons in their hands. The most recent time I played Soul Calibur 6 at a party, the room was full of my queer friends, all of us hooting and hollering at Ivy's slow motion breast jiggling. My girlfriend, my queen, we screamed in delight every time she stomped. She was part of us, one of us, uh, which is a lot of fun in a lot of ways and almost in some ways you know Namco stepping away allows this right and this is actually pretty famous in um fighting game discourse there are several sort of fighting game or action game characters um and these are in this case you know mostly mostly i think 
Japanese games um, that I'm sort of thinking of, but people who have like reclaimed a character, at, like queer folks who are really into a character. They have like a whole headcanon for the character. They have a whole sort of backstory for the character. And then they play them as a queer person. They play them as a queer woman. They play them as like, you know, who they see in themselves. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. This is not, I'm not super connected to the fighting game community. So this is just sort of experiences I've had secondhand, you know, watching friends play these games. And as Maddie sort of describes here, I think there's something awesome about that. There's something almost like, oh, this this unintentional gap in something actually allowed for, you know, marginalized people to see themselves in something and actually like take something for themselves. There's another angle to this piece that really got me, reminded me of why I think I do have a reflexive what or why I did have a reflexive dis, uh, distrust or distaste for characters like this. And also uh, various ways in which that reflex itself is, is bad and problematic. But she talks uh, like Maddie's talking about the, um, the, the fact of the, the undeniable fact of Ivy's large breasts. Um, and that there's just something about their mere existence that makes her a not safe for work character, right? An inappropriate <laughs> character. Yeah. And there's a very good point that, that that Maddie's making here, which is that like, hey, there are women with large breasts, and like th- this implicit, like this reflexive, like whoa, so sexual, so aggressive, like right. immediately you're all, you're engaging in a sort of like. Uh, body shaming or body policing by proxy. Um, And that does carry over into like, you know, that it carries over into expectations people have of women and various, um, like, for instance, just like, you know, shifts in, uh, you know, beauty trends and fashion trends uh, away from, uh, you know, women with like medium to large cup sizes toward like smaller cup sizes, and there being a whole like value judgment also associated with that, right? Like that, you know, oh, a large cup size is somehow tawdry, right? Um, and that is really, uh, it's it's incredibly cruel, and it's and it's also again like it is making a judgment about the fact of someone's body type. Um, and there's so, such a lack of those types of body types in a lot of video games. Um, and so, like, you can't blame people for, like, finding an interest in reclaiming a character or finding angles on a character that are for them because, well, like, how many body types are there that are even, like, within that space, within that realm? Like, it actually reminds me, um, like, a quote... I, I interviewed Maddie years and years and years ago for... Um, this podcast series they did a giant bomb um, uh, and I interview about uh, interviewed her about cosplay and I remember like one of the questions I asked at the end was like you know how does like the cosplay community specifically like women uh, cosplaying like how do they square uh, uh, criticizing like exploitative or sexually exploitative character designs um, while also dressing up and in some way seemingly celebrating them by, you know, going to different conventions. And, you know, the answer uh, she gave me was like, well, that's obviously like a really complicated question. It's like different for every person, but also like a lot about cosplay is like accuracy. And so it's like, if you even want to participate in this community, you are by nature 
uh, in which you are often judged for accuracy, like, well, accuracy is accurate to the character designs. And so, like, you have to work within the framework that you're given. And when you have limited representation, like, you have to work within that framework. And so then people find their angles. And, like, that that answer has always stuck with me and, like, reminded me because it felt like it resonated within this piece as well. It's like, well, like, this is the consequence of limited representation is that then people, uh, you know, grasp onto things that are available to them and... I, I think, like, I share, you know, Rob's uh, perspective in that, like, I have had that knee-jerk reaction plenty of times. And then it's, like, moments like this where I am forced to step back and go, right, okay. Like, I there are, like, several things that can be true. Like, one, like, uh, it could be a completely crass, gross, exploitative character design on, on the part of the designer, right? But, like, the creation of art and how that art is interpreted, uh, used, and wielded once it is out there is different. And so, like, I need to be mindful of that when, like, tr- choosing uh, to, like, put that <laughs> – put, put my knee back and, like, stop from jerking <laughs> around and, and realize that, like, it's a little more complicated than just uh, Japanese game designer, you know, creating a sexually exploitative character because it's just, it's just different in the real world. But at the same time, like, I also – reading this also made me understand a little bit better why I have that knee-jerk reaction and why I think fundamentally I'm still – not like I'm not okay with like expressing the reaction, but I understand better where it's coming from, which is that it is an uncomfortable thing when you know someone is aggressively trying to pander to you (laughs) and they are making judgments about who you are and your values and what you will find, uh, you know, titillating, exciting, captivating, interesting. And I think that's the other aspect that, makes it hard for me to warm up to games that sort of that, that tend to follow these sort of uh, you know character design aesthetics, which is that so many of them do feel like I don't know it's it's like an like it to me it often felt like they're trying to aggressively appeal to and exploit and manipulate. Uh, an idea of a teenage boy uh, or an arrested teenager that that I am never able like that I will never outgrow or something that's the assumption and you know the the thing I have to be watchful there is not everything's about me this character isn't about me but like (laughs) when I when there when when a character like this appears and I'm part of that audience and clearly to some extent I'm also maybe the intended audience in places uh, it does make it a little bit harder for me to put that aside because immediately that seem that it feels like it communicates a lot to me about the vision a creator had for their work and how it work how it would work upon its audience, and yeah. that is the part that maybe I find harder to move past. Like I don't deny people can reclaim this. But when your male gaze is assumed to be that much of a male leer all the time, it makes it hard to put that aside and feel like I've got a positive relationship with the creator or the art. Yeah. And that is something that Maddie went into in a piece she linked here uh, regarding something she wrote about Bayonetta in 2014. She actually goes well into the sort of how much Bayonetta's design reflects the tastes of 
her creator. How, you know, a girl with glasses, a girl who's tall, a girl who has long limbs. Like, there's all these sort of things that she goes into in that. And it's like, this is very clearly what this guy is into, with one of her creators is into. And it really speaks directly to that. But does that speak to everyone? And Maddie goes into saying things like, well, it's really complicated for me because it's like, oh, maybe I share some of these tastes, but these were not intended for me as a woman. You know, these were not intended for my tastes necessarily, even if I do share them. And so it kind of comes to that like weird magnet, that sort of you where you're on this side of something and you're and somebody else is all the way on the other side of something and you're actually pretty close, but it's coming from the completely opposite angle that is really interesting. This stuff is always complicated for me. Um, <clears throat> as a queer woman, I, you know, was confused my entire life about how much I should want someone, one of these characters, how much I should desire them versus desiring being them and sort of what their whole look and their whole feel and their whole attitude is supposed to convey to me or for me, uh, especially as somebody who always plays as a woman character, like at any point in life. When I was 10 and playing Mortal Kombat, nine, I guess, and playing Mortal Kombat. I always chose Sonya because she's the girl and I'm a girl, so I have to play as her, of course. And like, that's not even the hardest fit, right? Sonya, Sonya Blade was like really athletic and strong and she was not, um, you know, she was certainly the girl and she was othered in some ways for sure, but she wasn't exactly in like a, a thong. She was in like a sports bra and like yoga pants, basically, or, you know, the 90s version of yoga pants, uh, <laughs> right? Like, there, it was like an outfit that, like, looked like yeah, something like you'd a, work out in. It was, like, Yeah, it was like an evolution sexy. of the 80s exercise video. Yes, But, like, yes. from <laughs> transformed into the early 90s. For sure, for sure, exactly. Um, but I never, again, I never, like, had a problem so much with, like, very, very sexy-looking women. It just always intimidated me. It always scared me. I always felt very, very intimidated by this because it's not just a woman who is powerful and not just a woman who's sexual, but, like, Oh my God, she could beat the shit out of me. Like that would always be like the first thing little little twelve year old Danielle would think of. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of layers to this stuff, right? Everybody likes different things, but we're all socialized a particular way uh, to think there is a particular range of things that we find attractive, and that is different for every single human being in the world. But there are certain, you know, dominant cultural values that we look at. Um, and things that we are kind of told are sexy, right? You're, you're told certain things are sexy through every type of movie and TV show and game and everything that you kind of look at. So I do really appreciate that perspective, Rob. And it, and it makes me think as well of the sort of, I want to, I want to find a better term for this other than Arya versus Sansa, but it, it kind of comes down to that. Like the idea of like, I like the cool spunky girl, not the girly girl, that sort of like. I like geek girls, not the sexy girls, which always kind of throws all the, you know, traditionally feminine women under the bus in a lot of ways. So that's not great either. That's not real women great have feminist curves. Thing. Right. right. Real like, women have curves and wear glasses and they're dorks. And it's like, well, what about women who are skinny and are traditionally beautiful, but are not? You know, I'm putting beautiful in giant quotes here, uh, but don't fit into other certain stereotypes. Like just the fact that you're choosing a type is in itself, you know, problematic in some way. So but I don't know if you had any feelings about that as well. Well, But how much of this is due to the fact that, like, representationally, in a lot of cases, what a lot of audiences with a lot of groups get are crumbs, right? Where, right. It, like, it's... In a, lot of, in, in a lot of media, a character can't just be a woman. It... The, the character has to... And, or it doesn't have to, but ends up representing 
some idea of femininity or what it is to be a woman and there are value judgments associated with that and maybe part of that is just like you know the nature of fandoms and discourse and the fact that everything immediately goes under the microscope but i think the other part of this is whenever whenever representation has tended to be so minuscule and so narrow um any sort of deviation from that either toward toward an extreme or or attempt to do something completely different uh in opposition to the sort of dominant archetypes either case it ends up being defined against something it becomes defined against some other measure of female representation which is itself uh defining itself against some idea of womanhood yeah and again like you know where, where i end up with a lot of this stuff is there's this there's this like train of thought where people get exhausted with like the social justice discourse like why can't like why can't you just people why can't you people just be fucking happy why do we have to analyze everything <laughs> uh you know put everything under a microscope and uh, you know i think part of it is a a lot of us can't help it uh, a lot of us come from uh, sort of active and critical backgrounds where it's like it's just what i do uh but but i think the the other aspect of this is that when every character like this is worth remarking upon, when every character like this, their mere existence is remarkable in a way that a million variations of male, like various male characters and archetypes are not, um, then you, you, you sort of are asking for this kind of microscope treatment. We talked about this with, uh, at this point, I don't know which, or maybe all of the purge podcast, but right. Like, so like that's a series in which, um, you know, uh, like the last movie in particular, like has is a predominant uh, African-American minority cast in in which by having a large variety of black characters means that like when some of them dip into stereotype territory with a purpose, like with a point, it is it's OK because it's not the black character right. then being mm-hmm. a stereotype. It's a wide uh, uh, a painting of characters that can represent uh, all sorts of different things. And like this one character doing one thing can be for a specific purpose as opposed to representing blackness yes. <laughs> in society. Um, and I think that is like, w- w- Rob, I think you're totally right. Like that's sometimes what happens here. And I think where some of the uh, push and pull and tension over like, what do these characters mean or don't mean? Because like that, that argument over like what they represent is uh, an argument over the lack of representation and like helps like stoke that tension um, over like where we fall on like what a character is or isn't um, sort of in the quote unquote discourse. Completely. I remember, um, you know, taking a lot of screenwriting classes in grad school, uh, in film school, and I had a professor who was great and interesting and had a lot of great advice and things to say, but he always kind of had that idea of a default. And if you're writing a character who's not a sort of default, which and he didn't explicitly say it, but, it's, you know, straight white guy, a cis straight white guy kind of thing. Like, oh, you were saying something. You were deliberately saying something about the state of this person and this person in the world. And clearly you you had to like, you know, it was their opinions were representative of an entire group of people in some way. And it's like, that sucks. That's so damaging. Having that sort of one default human being and that everybody else is something else and is, you know, saying something else about their group's condition is shitty and you know it it ain't great (laughs) 
to put it, uh, I guess not to put uh, too fine a point on it. Um, so I do think a lot of this does come down to representation. And it does come down to, I will say, <clears throat> the way Maddie has described her sort of journey here, uh, it, it doesn't just ring true, but I think it rings true for a lot of people. I think a lot of us, and maybe I'm speaking a little too broadly here, but I think a lot of us have had a good think about stereotypes and about representation in the last, you know, 10 years. I hear people talking about these things that maybe wouldn't have in the past. And I, I do think there's some point to play for criticism here. There, you know, my mom and dad, who are 67, uh, will now talk about, like, you know, my mom would be like, well, that was that was a little weird in that movie. That was pretty sexist. And I'll be like, yeah, mom, you go, mom. I'm really glad. I'm really glad you're kind of paying attention to certain things. And again, I don't know if that's just people are more interested in the process of how things are made now. And so they kind of get, uh, you know, sort of little snippets of, of sort of cultural criticism kind of rain down on them from various angles or not. Or maybe this is just sort of anecdotal, but it heartens. It's heartening to me that there are or at least it feels like there is somewhat more awareness of some of this in the world. And people who do this every day, like Maddie, like us, people who do this sort of cultural criticism, I like to think we're becoming a little bit more aware of our uh, of our knee-jerk reactions, um, or at least that we're getting better at, at sort of calling ourselves on these things. So I don't know, again, I don't know if, if other people share that feeling. I, I hope, maybe I'm just sort of thinking hopefully here about this. It's not like it's I think also it's like, fixed, There's also like room. <laughs> there's room for both, right? Like yeah. it can also be like I look at this and go, like I rethink what my reaction. Like it is possible for it to be like gross and also for people to find joy sure. and and other things in it. Like though, like one does not excuse the other. Like their character designs can be better. There are ways to do a wider range of like body types and representation in a way that, uh, you know is is has a larger breadth than than what we have now you can also call out bullshit for bullshit while also <laughs> recognizing that people will find things even in the bullshit if all they're offered <laughs> is bullshit yeah i like thinking of that finding your trash can of claire and uh, and eating it too right that was very nice um okay cool so i think we'll take a quick break and head to the question buckets uh, so we will, yes, we will do that. Very quick break, and we'll dip into the buckets. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, and we are back. And we've got a couple of nice questions here. Uh, this one comes from Thomas from Oslo, who says, Top of the morning, pointy peeps. Sometimes a video game sequel comes to a way point where they decide, 
we have to go back. Uh, and uh, Thomas here says, hi, Patrick. Back to the text. I'm thinking of Dead Space 2 and the USG Ishimura. Metal Gear Solid 4 and the Shadow Moses Island. Or sorry, Shadow Moses Island. It's not the, and also Resident Evil 2 and the Spencer Mansion. Can you think of any other examples? What does the return make you feel? Is it a cheap nostalgia trick? I love these levels in the aforementioned games, but admit that sufficient time needs to have passed between the original and the return to have an impact. Love, Thomas from Oslo. I, have a, I appreciate the lost reference. Thank you. I want to make sure I recognize I knew what that was. I'm really glad. Glad Thomas was there for you. Um, briefly, I wanted to say I love this when it's done intelligently. Uh, and I loved when this was done as a sort of, hey, we've got level assets. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff to use. Let's use it really intelligently and really well. Uh, Dishonored Death of the Outsider did that uh, really brilliantly with a couple of levels that were sort of repurposed, uh, changed a little bit. You know, certainly the the sort of enemies and the, the sort of abilities that you had are very different. So the experience of playing some of them was very different. Uh, but they were sort of repurposed from Dishonored to in a way that was like, oh, this is awesome. You can, this is a great way of making a game. You already had all these very expensive assets, all this very expensive sort of architecture, all this work went into this. You might as well use it again in another context, especially when the powers felt so different and the sort of, you know, gameplay verbs felt so different. So that to me is a is a real good excuse uh, for we have to go back. Personally. Uh, uh, Dishonored is going to be mine as well. Because uh, cool. yeah. Dishonored has a history of doing this, I think, both within the games and between games. Um <laughs> Dunwall Palace is sort of the ground zero for a lot of the different plot action across Dishonored. It's where Dishonored 1 opens. Uh, It's where you return uh, at the end of the game's second act. And then it's a place you return uh, at at the very end of Dishonored 2. And each time you go there, something different is communicated about that space and the way it is reflecting the world around it. So when you first go there, uh, it is sort of a fortress of peace and, uh, and happiness in the middle of a dark time, right? Like it is the white walls rising from the seaside (laughs) and, you know, you're greeted by the queen and uh, young Emily Caldwin. And you are very much like you're back with your family unit and it is home. And, of course, that is broken up by a, an assassination. When you come back there later, it's become the headquarters for sort of a fascist us- usurper. And it's still recognizably the same building, but now there's, like, security fencing all around it. There are all these, um, like, arc lights strung around it to sort of, like, uh, you know, light up the perimeter at all times. It has become very much a, a very harsh and brutal fortress. And then in the third game, when you when you go back there, it's the first time you've seen it in a long time now, um, you find both memorials to the previous game's action, but also it has become completely like twisted and turned by the, the witches who've sort of taken it over and are sort of like working their own changes uh, on the environment. And that's a very cool thing. Um, and I wish more games had the, I don't know, it's not an issue of confidence, but I think a lot of games, I think, tend to default to, like, show you something new, show you something new. And I feel like it's a little underused making you go back uh, to a familiar place, even though it is a trope, but making you go back to a familiar place and sort of seeing it from a new perspective, uh, particularly when you've got, like, a new skill set to bring to it. 
Yeah, for me, I, two games, uh, Nintendo games come to mind. I think like Nintendo with the Zelda series has done, uh, continues to do like really interesting, really interesting job of like recognizing that players have a personal, long-standing, decades-long history with the series and the way in new games they recontextualize and revisit uh, like iconic moments, iconic figures, iconic locations, just the iconography that they know you are personally invested in, have a nostalgia for, have a have a history with. Like they deploy that very skillfully. Like I think specifically the ways they do that in Breath of the Wild, the ways they do that in um Wind Waker with the underwater yeah. sequences towards the end, I think are like genuine like holy shit moments in which like they are leveraging surprise that is a surprise because of a shared history. Nintendo as a company and like you as a player, like it all, it only works because you have an understanding of like where this series has come from that moments like that can have as much of, of an impact. Um, and like those are like deeply like emotional, like they, they are, they are plucking at nerves that uh, they know they are plucking at uh, with purpose. Um, I had a, a similar moment in uh, Super Mario Odyssey where there is a secret uh, area in that game uh, where you revisit the opening castle from Mario 64. And like the moment I encountered that castle, like I gasped because I was just like, Oh my God. I mean, it was just, uh, um, you know, all all it is, is, is a remake, but it's, you know, similar to, to the Zelda series. Like the way it is deployed is, is masterful and it's, it's reveal and, and the way that it is smartly plucking at, at you again your shared history with a franchise um you know nintendo is one of the few companies that can do that because there are very few franchises in which you you go back for a lot of people myself included like the majority of my life i have you know history with and so yeah i think nintendo is a company that i I constantly look at as, as one that understands its own history and the way it can use that uh with players and i i enjoy the moments they choose to deploy that yeah absolutely I, I brightened up when you mentioned the the castle in Odyssey as well because I, I was just kind of like, yes, oh, my God. And then wouldn't it be amazing yeah. if they remade Mario 64 with those assets? But still, you know, still very exciting. And uh, as you were talking, I also thought of Sonic Mania, which uh, sort of repurposes, it rebuilds some of the earlier Sonic levels and then sort of adds new things and adds kind of new small mechanics and sort of new flavors. So, yeah, it's it's. It's really, really rad when this sort of thing is done well and not just sort of like, well, we had a level, <laughs> you know, it's, fill, you know, it's filler or something like that. It is It is really cool. All right. One more question. <clears throat> this one comes from Terrell uh, from Pennsylvania. And this one came in today. This one's a fresh bucket, really top of the bucket, you know, fresh, came in hot. Uh, Terrell asks, do you think people working at Sony, Microsoft or Nintendo are ever happy when a game does not come to their platform? I noticed The Quiet Man is only available on Steam and PS4, and I'd have to imagine all the people working for Xbox are completely fine with that. Has there ever been a case or story you've heard where platform holder actively advocated against having a game appear on their system? No. I I think Microsoft would take their cut of the money from The Quiet Man and be just happy. Um, Nintendo has tacitly said fuck you at every generation uh, when it comes to other games from other platforms. But, like, I don't think they've ever said don't support our platform, please. I think in general it's just been, no, we're not matching hardware specs. Go to hell. (laughs) Uh, Or, like, uh, Microsoft had uh, a really shitty policy for a good part of the Xbox 
one where they wanted exclusive content on their indie games because they were often coming later right. to the Xbox. And so uh, it's not that they didn't want you to bring their game there. It's just that they didn't want it to be late and also the same thing. Um, they've since rescinded that policy uh, smart smartly because it was bullshit and uh, prevented a lot of uh, developers from in- investing in the platform and, and hurt them for a number of years. But like in that case, like they want the games, but their policies were actually preventing all sorts of games from, <laughs> from coming to their platform because they were being stingy about it for, for reasons that didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, – it feels like the uh... – <clears throat> If I may separate the spirit of the law from the letter of the law here in the question, probably no, no publisher is ever going to be like, no, don't give me money. Uh, but I wonder if there's like some executive or not even executive, like some some platform, somebody high enough in the food chain that makes some decisions, but actually you know cares about games and, and cares about sort of the reputation of the platform. I do wonder if there have been a few like. Ugh, you know, <laughs> days at the board meetings where they they kind of felt like they had to be like, oh man, I don't I don't know about this one, guys. This oof, this we've got a real stinker on our hands here, and I, I always I always wish I was a fly on the wall for obviously for those kinds of meetings. Gotta like when a game is from like a not an indie developer, but like an independent developer who like contracts with different publishers, like. If they release a bomb, like chances are somebody would had it pitched to them and like passed, and probably in those days somebody is like, man, it's a it's a good thing I didn't take uh you know take take a shot on that one. That was a that that was a good uh, that was a good no deal. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the closest you get uh, to most of these cases. I think the other thing is probably there's a lot of Schadenfreude when there's um like a platform exclusive. That's gone to hell in a handbasket. Uh, that's you know probably, but I'm trying to think now. Have there been a lot of like platform exclusives? Like, yo, this is from one of our partnered studios or one of our uh, proprietary studios. Have there been a lot of those that have just been like have completely shit the bad? Some PS3 launch games. I'm trying to remember exactly. It, Lair. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I increasingly believe that Days Gone, the zombie game oh. coming from uh, Sony and uh, studio in the Pacific Northwest, who did Siphon Filter, cannot remember. Oh. Um, that I've, I've, what I've seen of that game and what I've heard about that game are not en- <laughs> encouraging. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know if I'd go as far as say a shit show, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost difficult these days for games with that much money to be the kind of bad that you're talking about, Rob. Like, there's just, you, you can, games have been made for long enough time that you, especially when they're in sort of, like, genres in which there is an established floor, like, it's hard for it to, like, truly sort of shit to bed in that way. It's more just that they end up becoming disappointing as mm. opposed to, like, you know, truly incompetent. Barely functional, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Think of how many good order games you could have made for what they're pouring into Days Gone. God damn it. I know. <laughs> and that game was, what, four hours long? Chapters. Oh, could at least get four more great hours of Arthurian Victorianism. I still need to go back and play that. I'm... But socially aware. I do, too. <laughs> I feel like that's always been on my list of, like, I probably would have liked that one. That's probably my bullshit a little bit. No, it's extremely like, man, I love the fucking height of the British Empire, but colonialism was bad, and the (laughs) Arthurian Knights would have been against it. 
<laughs> that's lovely. That's truly lovely. Oh, I love when games like that get made. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. A little bit of a shorter episode today, but that's because we got to, you know, peek behind the curtain. We have we have another podcast to do today, and we want we want them all to be good, you know? So sometimes they're tight. Nice, tight podcast. If you have questions, you can send those to gamingatvice.com with the subject question. As always, shout-outs to Too Mellow for the track Bump This off of Trunk Fiction. Uh, check out his music and musings at at Mellow Makes on Twitter and his tracks at 2, numeral 2, Two Mellow Makes at, uh, excuse me, twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're on twitch.tv slash Waypoint. You can read everything we write at waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, where can people find you online? At Patrick Klopik. How about you, Rob? At Rob Zachney. You can find me, if you'd like to, at Danielle R.I. on Twitter. And I would like to remind you to be good and be good at it. Sir Galahad says, it's okay to be a vampire. (laughs) Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.